Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Our guest today is Greg Chadwick. Greg is a Santa Monica-based artist who's been painting for three decades, and his work has been exhibited in national and international galleries, art fairs, and museums. He's given many lectures on the arts, including speaking engagements at UCLA and Categorically Not, a forum that examines the intersection of art and science. Greg is also a fellow in the Clark Hewlings Fund's 2017 Business Accelerator Program. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm really honored to be here and be part of the Clark Hewlings Fund program this year. We're really glad to have you as well. Uh, Greg, can you take a minute to just tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think the key for me is I was brought up in a military family. My dad was in the Marine Corps, so we moved all the time as a kid. But the great thing about that is I was exposed to so many different beautiful things from landscapes to architecture to paintings. And those early cues um, kind of find their way um, like a thread into my current work. So my work has not just one theme, but a series of different themes that I pursue over the years. And the idea of travel and motion has always been part of my work. And my most recent series of work is literally about travel and motion with a series called Mystery Train that was inspired by my grandfather, who was a train engineer in the Jersey Central Line in New Jersey. So uh, let me start off by asking you uh, about the art community in Santa Monica. What is it like? It's really interesting. It, you know, the West Side, uh, it's very um, expensive to rent and to live. So studio space is at a premium. That said, those of us who've been able to find this space and have been there, I've been in a building for 14 years now, we've uh, found a community that's very tight and very supportive of each other. I moved down here from San Francisco, and it was a little bit harder there because the, then the uh, the dot-com boom and everything else, the rents had jumped so much that we found ourselves getting priced out, and that sense of community was really lost. But in Santa Monica, I, I really find artists supporting each other. Well, I want to ask you, you know, you brought up the issue of the cost of space, and your workplace is actually a little bit unusual. You've mentioned... Uh, that your series, Mystery Train, is about travel and motion. But so is your studio, really. I mean, you have a studio, as I understand, in, in an airplane hangar. Can you tell us about that? That's absolutely correct. It's at the Santa Monica Airport. It's an old uh, airplane hangar that's been refurbished and uh, gutted initially, and then interior structure of 30 different artist studios. So there's many of us in there, which is our own little hive, little working community. It's owned by the city of Santa Monica though it's run by Yossi Gavran and Sherry Frumpkin. And Sherry had a gallery, uh, the Frumpkin Gallery, for a number of years, so she's really well, well-connected in the L.A. art um, world, and that helps bring people into our space. They see it as a serious place, uh, almost a, um, an incubator for new ideas and new work. And the cool thing is, well, cool or not, depending, 
since I grew up on military bases, the sound of a jet taking off actually gives me a little goosebumps and a childlike feeling. Not everybody shares that, but it doesn't disrupt me at all. But there is, it's an active runway outside. Uh, there are lots of planes coming and going um, from small craft to larger private jets to uh, movie stars such Harrison Ford, for whatever they, <laughs> they're in the area. I actually had a collector from Park City, Utah fly in one day, land in the airport and walk on over to my studio to take a look at a piece that was in progress that they had commissioned. So it, it can be quite handy at times. So you're you're in an airplane hangar and you're do, working on your series Mystery Train, which you had mentioned. Uh, but why trains? Why not Mystery Plane? What 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 grabs you about trains? Uh, that's a good question. But the trains themselves, I mean, it really is. There, there's something historical about them. There's something that's lost, and I think the loss in trains. You know, there's a romance to the past in a lot of ways. Some of it's. Um, mere, you know, uh, you know, sympathetic thoughts when I was young, but other things are really, you know, there's a technology that had some cool things that we're going for. There are some beautiful machines, that idea of movement. And I think there's a, a human element um, about rail travel. You, you know, you've got one um, long series of cars linked together with uh, perhaps hundreds of people on them. And that, uh, you know, you don't have the TSA pat down like you do when you go to the airport now. And also connected with the family, um, the ideas of my grandpa out on the train, early rides when we were kids. And then my family stories, too. I, j I just met up with my uncle uh, when I was out in um, Wisconsin, and he was telling me all the rail lines that he took grandma and grandpa on, um, you know, his mom and dad, throughout the United States. And a lot of them I painted. They all have their own individual coloring, marking, history. So I think that there's a depth of story with rail travel, probably just from our, our distance from it now. Whereas, uh, you know, there are some planes in my paintings, there's no doubt about it, but I'm really concentrating on just the idea of trains as a metaphor almost for travel itself. So have you ever thought about approaching Amtrak to sell this series? Yeah, you know, that's a really good idea. And I, I definitely have had um, some folks wander into the studio looking at my work and um, helping connect me with uh, some of the rail organizations, both here and abroad. So that is one of my goals. And as I'm going forward with the project with uh, the Clark Hullings Fund, I'll be contacting uh, different rail agencies throughout the country and, and again elsewhere too, because I think there's a real interest in historical rail in uh, Japan, for sure, um, the growing rail movement in China, and then of course Europe with their high-speed trains. You know, there's the romance of um, and, and a new film coming out. You know, we've got the Murder in the Orient Express with Johnny Depp. So, you know, there is that mystery sense of trains as well that's still out there. But I will definitely be digging deep into corporate so sources who might be interested in this body of work. Well, when I was a kid, you know, transportation art was, you know, actually a thing. Uh, I mean, it was the, the jet age on the heels of the rail age. I remember playing, though with uh, these toy semis they were always branded you had the abf branded toy semi or the allied moving van semi and and you could get these things back then they would give them away now they're priceless they're they're collector's items but i love to think of you sort of doing something to restore that because i kind of miss it that was like the art deco uh impulse right to to pursue transportation as a human achievement does that ever grab you the art deco impulse 
Absolutely. The Art Deco side of it is really, really important to me. Um, one of the trains that I've depicted multiple times already is the 20th Century Limited, which was the most Art Deco of the American rail lines. Absolutely gorgeous engine. Space Age, um, they actually had it at the 1939 New York World's Fair. And my dad was telling me about going to that World's Fair and looking at everything and thinking that the future was going to be very bright. Um, <laughs> give or take a, you know, a few uh, bumps in the road, I still, I'm still optimistic towards, um, that idea. And I, and I think the, um, the images of the, uh, deco work and all of that, and the Italian futurists as well, um, also had elements of that sense of speed and beauty and clean lines. And I think it's something that we, you know, we can look forward to, um, in the future. And I'm trying to celebrate that in some of my paintings. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of those Art Deco transportation posters, especially the ones with trains and planes, and, and especially the trains because they're big, they're behemoths. You know, they're, they're just monuments to what human engineering and a, achievement can produce. And, you know, I've seen uh, photos of your work, and I'm like, wow, this guy's making, you know, Art Deco posters, but he's making, you know, the originals. <laughs> it's a lot of fun looking at your work. Yeah, it is. And it's a lot of fun to paint them. I mean, I think in many ways, it, you know, you were mentioning being a kid and playing with the branded toys. You know, I did that as well. Actually, it was at my um, brother-in-law's house the other night, and he's got a Milwaukee Road rail car on a little track on his fireplace, you know, just on top of it. And it was it's really fun. I mean, we all have that, you know, this, sort of those memories. And I think turning them into a larger scale and making paintings out of these, um, you know, ephemeral moments, uh, is, is a pretty powerful thing to do. So Greg, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. We've talked a little bit about you and your background. I want to switch, uh, we've got several segments in the show to talk about today, and I want to switch to talking about uh, art itself. Uh, so can we start with just sort of a general question? Why, why did you become a visual artist in the first place? Oh, my first, you know, kind of inkling of being an artist started. My dad, as I mentioned earlier, was in the military. He was in the U.S. Marine Corps and was in Vietnam. 1965, I was a little, little kid. And uh, after he had finished up the tour, about two years later, we met up in Paris. And when my mom and dad were newly married, they had lived in Europe. They were in Paris. My dad was stationed at the embassy as the head of the uh, Marine Corps Guard there. And so Europe was a real romantic place. They wanted to get the family back together. So we fly out from New Jersey, my mom, my brother, and I, and we reunite with my dad after wartime. So, you know, that in itself was just like, wow, the world is amazing. And then they started taking us to art museums. I slept through most of Paris uh, at jet lag, but we went to Amsterdam and we walked into the Rijksmuseum, the major art museum there. And at this time, my dad smoked cigars and, they, you know, his go-to brand was not very expensive, but they had a Rembrandt painting on the box and they were Dutch master cigars. And I'm like, yeah, my dad, my dad, my family were all together. And, uh, you know, it's like, this is really cool. And then I look up on the wall and there's the Rembrandt painting that they use on the cigar box on the wall. And I was entranced. I mean, it's just, it took me to a place that I've never left. I was like, a person created that. It's not just advertising. It's beauty. It's made out of this amazing stuff, which is paint. And I, I knew at that moment, I really wanted to learn how to do that. And of course, I'm still trying to learn how to do that, but it, it sparked an interest that's never stopped for art and art museums, knowledge. 
That brings me to another question. You know, I've seen different types of work, and I'm going to mention another one of your your projects here in a minute. Um, but I've seen different types of work from you. Has you've been doing this, you know, 30 years, if I'm not mistaken? Has your style and and your subject matter evolved significantly during that time? Yeah, it really has. And I, you know, I think that as life goes, it, you know, we we change. We uh, mellow, we don't mellow, you know, different aspects of life gives us different subject matter. And my early stuff when I was, uh, you know, kind of a very serious young artist in New York in the 19, you know, the late 1980s, it's, you know, right out of the films, I, my stuff was a lot, um, you know, I had I had a lot of friends who would call it dark and dreary. <laughs> it was, you know, I was definitely looking at the, the hard edge nature of life at that time. I have a few of those paintings that still exist, not that many, but it was a it was something that I was interested in and it was more of a hard edge style to go with the kind of the hard boiled content. I thought I was trying to create, you know, I don't know, mystery novels. And, but, you know, 30 years later, I'm approaching mystery in a different sort of way. My style is much less hard edge, but very open-ended, uh, even more impressionistic in a way, but marrying some of those elements back and forth, especially now looking at the trains with the, the structure of the machines themselves. So in some ways, I'm going full circle back and adding elements of that in. And I think that that marriage of a, a harder and a softer style is a, a, a medium that I'm very, very happy with. I, I can definitely see those hints. I actually, I, I, I see it there and I still, uh, I like it. I don't think of it as dark and dreary. This stuff pulls me in. Like You are, you know, you look at a lot of the Art Deco transportation pieces, just back to Mystery Train, and uh, there's very few human beings in them. And I, I really like figurative art, and I like human art. And your your pieces have things like, you know, a bus pulling up, the lights are on, and there's a ghostly passenger outside, or you have a, a conductor next to the train, or you have a passenger going toward the train. And uh, there's a sense in which, you know, it's not man or machine, but they're, they're both sort of involved. Uh, and I, I feel like your stuff um, still has that sense of hard-boiled, you know, 30s detective fiction, uh, but in a, in a way that is warm and not off-putting. And maybe that's part of the evolution, or, or maybe this is just, you know, your, your fullest expression of what you were going for in the first place. But I, I love the work. Oh, I'm, I'm, thank you so much. I mean, that really is that, I mean, you've got it. You described it beautifully. I'm going to have to play this back and write that down. Um, it's really what I'm going for with the work. It's that combination of both, you know, hard edge, you know, the idea, not, you know, hard boiled, the idea of the mystery novel, but also the, the real humanity, the warmth of humanity, the warmth of human connection within the work. And even if they're ghostly figures coming and going, there's a sense of lives lived and, you know, how interconnected we are. And, you know, the rail lines themselves are a force that interconnected all of us, you know, this continent brought together with these steel rivers running back and forth, you know, moving people and goods and ideas. And I, I really want the, the romance and the humanity of that to, to shine forth in the work. Well, it definitely does. And that leads me uh, to sort of my next question, uh, which, which is that your art, you know, you, you, you've said to me, um, I speak on art and social justice in academic settings. And, you know, we'll talk a, l a little bit about that. But you organized a, a panel discussion called Art in the Time of Trump in, Dan in January. And that was right after the inauguration. So, you know, it's easy to see the humanity in your art. But would you say that your art is political or would you consider yourself political and the art is not? How would you, how would you characterize that? I think 
there's, I, I think my art is political in the sense that all art has a political stance, whether it's, um, you know, on the surface or boiling underneath, you know, an artist like a writer like Steinbeck, you know, obviously you can read his stories as just straight. Okay. It's the adventure of moving from, you know, a difficult dust bowl in, in the grapes of wrath out to, um, struggles in a new life in California. And you can just look at the human nature of that, but it's also, there's the political forces, you know, underneath that, why did this happen? Who was fighting this movement of people and all of that? So, you know, in some ways, I think that some of these 1930s concerns are coming back up in our current political climate. And I think my style and looking at some of the 1930s transportation elements, there's a bit of a bit of Steinbeck there. And I think that would probably um, be one of the closest uh analogies from another art form for what I'm trying to do with the work. I have a few pieces that are that are explicitly political, but I tend to do those not so much for the the major gallery shows, but more um, intimate settings or um, opportunities. And I, I did a piece, um, a series of pieces that were basically on homeless individuals. And I had a, they had a showing of them at USC. Um, I was invited by an amazing professor there, Jody Armour in the law school. So I have that element as well. So it's kind of both. You know, I, I can't help but think that it's sort of the nexus between the political and the anthropological. You, you made a, a comment uh, in an interview on the Clark Healings Fund website, um, which our, our listeners can find at clarkhealingsfund.org. Uh, you said that oil painting is the perfect medium to capture our current moment in time. And that could sound political or it could sound like something else. I, I wonder, what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think it's both. You know, I think I think it's both. I think it is. I think there's the political moment. I mean, I think that definitely the world is, you know, crumbling, and every day something new happens. And today, pulling out of the Paris Accords, whether you agree or not, it's a, it's a global change. It's a shift, and I think that art is really primed to to look at that. And the you know the the thing about oil painting is the history is so deep and it goes so far back. Again, I had talked about maybe a black thread, a line that runs, you know, within um, the history of art. Uh, Robert Bly used that phrase. And I like, to, I like to think of, you know, being connected to all the painters who came before me and that oil paint itself, because of that history, each image that is created now, we are in essence standing on the shoulders of the masters. There is no doubt about it. But it also allows us to talk about things and speak about things with a very subtle touch. So do you ever worry that you might alienate some potential buyers or is it too subtle for that? No, no, I, I definitely have alienated folks. Um, you know, my, um, my kid is transgender and that, that is my life. And so that is part of the political impetus in, in certain aspects of my work to be very LGBT open and friendly. And there are certain avenues that, that close because of that. There's no doubt about it. But then on the other hand, there are other avenues that open wide because um, I'm considered an ally with the LGBT community. You know, so I look at it both ways. I can't not be myself. All right. So let me ask you about um, the other side of it then. You know, you, we talked about the fact that you are a lecturer. Is community organizing something that you're passionate about or, or did you sort of back into that and it came out of being an artist? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, kind of both. I when I was a college student, I did a lot of camp counseling. It was something I just wanted. It paid well. I like to be outside. It was fun. You could be athletic and all of that. But two, the elements of of thinking about doing things to help structurally, you know, caught on in my in, you know in my head at that time when I got involved with different different groups, different organizations. I did some early benefits um, early in my career for Amnesty International. And, you know, some of the art benefits that they've done over the years. And so it was, it's always been part of who I am and what I do. And but the speaking thing is really, I've, I've done different levels of speaking over the years, but it's really come on in the last 10 years. People basically asking me to come on in and speak. And um, I've kind of said, okay, I'm going to do it. Let's do it. See what happens. It's, it's never easy. As you know, I mean, Daniel, you're, you're on stage all the time and, uh, you know, doing your, your talks and dealing with all of us. It's, you know, it takes a lot of preparation, uh, but I think the community organizing side of it is, you know, something that gives me hope for the future. It's definitely part of who I am. Well, you called me out. Uh, yes, my community organization takes the form of, you know, planting educational seeds wherever I can. So, yeah, and we're going to talk about, I'm going to ask you about your experience in the, the accelerator program later in the show. So, I get what you're saying. I want to shift then from art and community organization to the business side and ask you to tell us about your first big sale. Well, but my first big, big sale, I, I, okay, I'll tell you my first sale. My first sale, I was in high school and a friend of the family started an art gallery in suburban Virginia. It was in Fairfax County and she loved my work. I was 14, I think. And she uh, put my paintings up and boom, first day, you know, I had a nice little piece that sold. You know, I think it was 150 bucks or something. But for a high school kid, that was a lot of money. So I was excited. It gave me a real idea that art is a career. It's not just something you do that's fun. And it kind of woke my parents up quite a bit, too. They're like, oh, hey, there's something going on here. So that was my first sale. And my first really big sale, I think, happened when Adobe Corporation was building their headquarters in San Jose. And they basically, um, you know, were filling it up with lots of art. And I was living in the Bay Area at the time. This is in the uh, the late 90s. And they bought um, 11 of my paintings, including two commission pieces for their lobbies. So that was a giant, giant boost for both my um, business world and uh, confidence that this is something that not only can I pursue, I should pursue, and I should do this full time and really make it make a go of it. Now, your work is featured at the Sandra Lee Gallery. Tell me, do you, um, do you sell work directly to the public also or only through the gallery? I also, yes, I definitely sell work directly to the public also. It, you know, it's one of those conversations. Every gallery is different. Every gallerist is different. And I'm very, very careful to talk with my art dealers about the connections that I have. And so Sandra, if there's a painting that has been in the gallery that she still, you know, feels is, is part of what she is representing, or if it's somebody that has come across my work because of the Sandra Lee gallery, she definitely always, always gets her percentage. And I've actually surprised her with, with checks in the past where somebody's come in and bought something, but I knew they came because of her. So she's, um, she's always been thrilled about that. We, we've got a very close relationship and I try to maintain that with, all of the art dealers that I currently have and have had over the, you know, over the years. So is Sandra's gallery your, your first gallery representation? And, and if not, how did you first secure gallery representation in, in the first place? 
Yeah, you know, it, that, I was I was thinking about that last night when I was, you know, kind of uh, bouncing around in the bed going, I'm going to be on a podcast tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was thinking about that. It's really the personal connection. Um, one of the first artists who represent, well, excuse me, one of the first galleries that represented me um, in the San Francisco area or carried my work. It wasn't, it was a lo- not a loose representation of the Andrea Schwartz Gallery. And that was basically because we were friends. You know, I, I went to the gallery a lot. I got to know her. We're still very, very close to the point where she just um, asked me to put a piece in a, a benefit for a cause she really believes in in the past, you know, the past month. So it's the, it's that art dealers are people, you know, they're, they're not just business folks. And I mean, nothing wrong. With, I'm, I'm not using that in a critical way, but approaching an art dealer on the human level is, is really key. And as opposed to just seeing them as a conduit to something bigger for you and those relationships that build, and they can take a lot of time. And that was the first. And then the Lisa Casino Gallery in Pacific Grove, California, um, represented me um, soon after that. And she's, she's been amazing. She's just great. She closed the gallery, which happens all the time. And, but now she runs a museum in Los Gatos, California. So we're also very close. And then the um, Julie Nestor Gallery in Park City, Utah, represented me for quite a while. And that was a great, great relationship. I still still work in Park City quite often because of that. And again, that was through connections, art world connections, and really trying never to burn bridges. And one of the key things, and this is what Andrea taught me really early on, Andrea Schwartz, is, you know, you're going to change galleries. It's sort of like professional sports. Even if you're a great baseball player, you're going to get traded down, down the line. You're not always going to be with one gallery and just be ready for that and be gracious about it. You'll get picked up somewhere else. You'll find another place. Just keep moving. And really, you know, the key was for me was not to burn any bridges and then move forward with that. Now, your work is featured uh, on art space uh, and it's work that's the same as the gallery or, or very similar. And then there's a whole different body of work uh, that you can see at Saatchi. And you've got some some product uh, that is at Vita. You know, like I can get a, a handmade clutch with uh, with your artwork on, especially that clock, that clock. I, I, it reminds me of something. It's very lemony, snicketish meets you know uh, the, you, that story where Jack goes back in time. I just I love the the image, it, and it reminds me a little bit of Dolly meets Hopper, you know. But uh, I see that those yeah. items. Oh, I hope I didn't. <laughs> I hope that's not offensive. <laughs> no, for me that's absolutely. I mean, I I couldn't have coined that. That's beautiful. I'm I'm honored. That's exactly it. <laughs> That's how we should market it. Dolly meets Hopper. Dolly so meets I, Hopper, right? That's good. That's right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wonder, how did you get into this having a line of products like this? It's not the traditional mug and T-shirt thing, and and you know, is that something your gallery arranges? Did you set it up, and and how is it working? Is it is it paying off? It, it's paying off really well. It's it was one of those things. Vita is a great company, and they had been contacting me for about a year and i was like okay let's see what happens you know again i was a little concerned about the mug and t-shirt sort of thing and you know there are other places that have come and gone but i you know i I spent some time really investigating the products in the line and their price points um you know very um very good and also their terms with the artists uh, are great and i found it to be 
kind of a seamless sort of, um, you know, avenue to pursue. I, I like it. All the paintings that, that I'm using as a base for the imagery that I've created with the products are sold. So, so it's not competing with the original item itself. And that's one thing that I think um, artists need to be aware of that, you know, I've had other art dealers um, say, you know, hey, that's a really nice card. So I'm just going to take that. I don't want to buy your painting, you know, yeah, as a joke, but also sort of meaning it that, you know, don't don't put your image out there too much when you're really trying to sell the painting. But with the Vita line, these are paintings. I've sold the originals and then it's taking my work to a whole nother level and another accessibility point. And plus, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, uh, you know, my wife's got a, a bunch of stuff that, that she wears around. And uh, there's been a number of, of sales and purchases. It's going really well. Actually, I'm quite, quite, quite happy with it. I'd, I'd recommend it. I have some other artist friends down here in LA who are doing it as well, and they're enjoying it too. Yeah, I, I noticed you said the, the terms were favorable to artists. So I guess I want to double up on my next question. And, uh, you know, I was, I was going to ask you uh, if you rely on the gallery for everything, but you clearly don't. Uh, you, you clearly have your own avenues of marketing and sales. And so that makes it sort of essential that you find people to collaborate with where the terms are favorable. So tell me, what does that mean? When you say that their terms are favorable to the artist, what does that look like? Well, with Vita, it's different. I, I'll, I'll talk about galleries first because there's, there's is a, a percentage and, and um, you're selling your image as opposed to selling an original thing. So I'll start with the original stuff. You know, the, as we have become accustomed to the um, general terms between a physical gallery and the artist is a 50-50 split. And that's been around since the Marlboro Gallery uh, with uh, Rothko in the 60s. Before that, it was more favorable for the artist. But I'm quite happy with that. I, I, I really support the galleries that currently show my work and have in the past. They work really hard. Their expenses are, you know, very, very high. And I think the artist, you know, does, does well with those relationships. So I'm happy with that. When it starts sliding over to, there are some, some galleries that artist friends of mine have shown with that are more in the 60-40, the gallery taking 60 and the artist 40%. I'm, I'm a bit more hesitant. I would not go that direction personally. I, you know, I think it really depends on the artist, but I, I think the 50-50 split is a model that's worked really well for a long time. Now, um, online, Saatchi, uh, they take a, a lower percentage. For most of the time, it's been 30% which um, has been quite nice. And they're, they're just about to raise that a little bit. And then uh, Artspace, which is the other online spot that shows my work, they do take 50%, like a, a physical brick and mortar gallery. But they also have connections to the publishing world. They're owned by Phaedon, the, the art book publisher. And I'm, um, you know, I really liked when they approached me. You know, they just sent me an email out of the blue. Hey, do you want to show with us? And I was, you know, I was honored by it, so I liked it. And they, they've done really well with my work, actually. They sell quite a bit, which is nice. And then in terms of Vita, the percentages are less because it's, you're not selling a physical thing. It's a licensing thing. So it's about 10% of the, the sale price of an item. We talked about, you know, a couple of your projects. We talked about Mystery Train and, and we talked about Art in the Time of Trump. Uh, and now I want to mention one, but for a different reason. Uh, so this is less about you as the artist and more about what you're thinking from a business sense. Um, you have a, a group show coming up and it has an Elvis theme. And I wonder if, you know, that sort of affords you a built-in audience, uh, if that's part of your thinking at all. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely it. This is um, the Linda Ross Gallery in Memphis, Tennessee. I was just communicating with her this morning, uh, so that's always fun. And yeah, it's it's a built-in. Memphis is an amazing city. If you folks listening have not gone there, you need to go to Memphis for the music, for the food, for the civil rights history, and for Elvis. And what um, Linda does every year, she runs this show um, right near Elvis Week, which is uh, run by um, the estate, the Graceland estate. They put on this big Elvis thing. And it brings in, it brings in people who normally wouldn't be walking into a, an art gallery. And I think it, it opens it up for, uh, a, you know, a different audience and it's, and it's a lot of fun. And I like that. I think, I think it's a, I think it's a really good approach to um, connect different types of, of arts, you know, and, and some of the more popular culture oriented elements of Elvis is, you know, it's, it's a challenge for me. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it connects directly with, you know, a lot of the work I've done in, in, in the mystery train era, uh, you know, of my work, there's a lot of pop music and cultural history within it. And the Elvis show is, you know, opens that right up. I'm, I'm just shocked that you left out barbecue of all the reasons to go to Memphis. I'm thinking jazz barbecue <laughs> and you heard it here, folks. He said, you also got to go for Elvis. So Greg Chadwick believes that Elvis is still alive and along with oh, yeah. the residents of Memphis and that you can find him there, uh, you know, at this, you can find him there <laughs> at this show. Well, that's right. So we've said already that you've been working as an artist for, for three decades. Um, and we asked you about how your sort of, how your art has evolved. What about your approach to business? Has it changed in that time? Yeah, it's changed immensely. I, I think the um, it was interesting to be in San Francisco with the the beginning of the online boom for sales. There were a couple of early online galleries. Next Monet was one, um, and it did. It was just a little too early. They they really didn't quite have the business model yet, and. It, I was, it was, but I was around it to watch it, and it was, you know, really eye-opening. I knew that that the future was really going to be very, very connected to what was happening on the web. And then, as the 2000s rolled along with social media and the ability to communicate globally, I started writing a blog in 2004 for connecting um, with artists and also for, you know, some social and political concerns as well, being who I am and, and what I do. And I found that there was a real global reach and I became physical friends with a lot of people that I met. So the business side of it really developed through the changes in the platforms that we communicate with. And uh, I found also then that was very open to when Saatchi Art decided that they were going to move from just being an artist kind of, I don't know, sort of, they basically kind of had a chat room and sections artists could look at your work and you could talk and they went to the sales model. I jumped at that. You know, their name recognition in itself was fantastic, but just I knew that they were onto something. You know, I saw what Amazon had done. So it's been very, very much a shift from a lot of the old school knocking on gallery doors, you know, with, you know, you're working your, you know, your station wagon or whatever to, you know, being able to, you know, have images up on Instagram that artists and other gallerists can see and the connected nature of that. You know, one of the things I found is, I did my blog as I and I continue to do it. I would seed stories about subjects with my own paintings that dealt with it. And I've gotten a, a number of contacts over the years looking for either particular paintings or ideas 
based on things that I had put up online. So that reach has changed everything for me. Well, I think in the final segment of the show, we're actually going to dig in a little bit. I wanted to know for some of our other working artists about your use of social media and blogging. Uh, let me ask you first, um, though, about price points. So you sell at a variety of price points, and I'm curious how you set your prices. What's your, your process in that? process basically is the, the physical brick-and-mortar galleries that I have, they have a level where you know, they followed my work, they've sold a lot of things, and, you know, there's a consistent history and a growth of where those prices are. So at this point, you know, my large-scale pieces are, you know, 10 to 15,000. Um, you, know, you know, they're pretty moderate at this time for this stage of my career, which also makes it accessible. And then the smaller pieces uh, range, you know, from 5,000 down. And the works on paper, they're the ones that tend to be more of an entry level. Um, price and so I, I find it important to have a you know a variety of different types of entry points where people are interested in my work. Well, you've also donated art to charity. Why do you do that? Uh, does it help your career at all, um, or or is that uh, even if that's not your primary reason, uh, is there are there benefits to it, and what's your driving motivation? Yeah, it does help my career, but it really depends. As every, you know, all the artists listening to this, we all are asked, you know, almost daily, it seems, to donate a piece for this or that or this or that or this or that. And I've, I've narrowed it down for a few charities that I deeply, deeply agree with the cause, and then also that are deeply connected with the art world. So I mentioned earlier that Andrea Schwartz had asked me to donate a piece for the Hospitality House um, benefit in San Francisco which uh, helps the homeless community there. And the art world in San Francisco has supported that cause for years and years and years. So it's, it's pretty much almost an, an art world get together when that benefit happens in the evening. So it does, it really has benefited me over the years in many, many ways and help a great cause. And then down here in Los Angeles, in Venice, California, the Venice Family Clinic, um, we just finished um, the benefit and they ask, it's, a very limited number of artists now. It's very well curated, and, and and for a lot of artists, they find it very very hard to get into it. So there's sort of a you know an honor that you're asked to be in this charity too. So it it does pay off. And again, it's it's quite it's quite the crowd. I've got a photo I haven't quite put up yet of a an actress in front of my uh, the painting that I had, and that's you know that's sort of the Hollywood moment. It's always a lot of fun. So. In terms of helping uh, a career, I've heard some artists say that it's more beneficial early on than later. Has that been the case for you? I know that you're you're kind of squinching it off because there's only so much work you can do for free, you know, but but is it also less helpful now? Yeah, you know, I think that's true. In terms of the business side of it, I think it is less less helpful now in terms of, you know, when you're when you're really just starting out and people don't know your work at all, you know, getting it out there, getting that exposure. Uh, one of my, um, Angiola Churchill, who was my uh, major professor at NYU, you know, kind of took me aside uh, at class one day and said, Greg, you need to give your work away. And that, because I was young and nobody knew who I was in New York, it's like, just, just put it up in these things. Go do this benefit because nobody knows who you are. And I think in the early stages, I think it's really key. And, you, and you'll find some, some people who are attracted to the work that they haven't seen. As your career develops and people know, you know, know more about you, it can be a little bit, at times it happens with certain, certain benefits, more of a chance, ah, I can get a, 
you know, a Chadwick for a bargain here. So let's, you know, why would I buy it from the gallery? Let me just go to this benefit. So I'm, you know, it's a balance. And I try to be very careful with that to, to not have that temptation out there that much. Well, it sort of mirrors what happens with a lot of other professionals. You know, they're asked, um, no one ever asked me anymore, but, you know, in the early days, you know, somebody would say, do you do spec work? I once had to look that up. I'm like, what does that mean? Oh, you just mean, right. well, I work for free. And <laughs> yeah. the answer, so that I can prove myself. And the answer is no, I've got a reputation, you know, and go ahead and ask people. So I never did spec work, but... Uh, I get the idea that, you know, when you can do it for charity, I have done that and it is it is valuable. But I think as you then your price goes up, your value goes up, your time goes down, your name gets more valuable. What you're saying is you can now pick and choose charities that you truly really believe in enough that the work is worth it to you to donate because you feel so strongly about their cause. Uh, So I think that's helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you another question before we sort of switch and talk about um, the accelerator program. What have you done well in your business, do you think? What, what, what's the thing that you like the best about it? You know, what I really love is that, you know, this is basic, but I'm selling my paintings. You know, I mean, and, and selling them enough that I'm, you know, I've been doing it primarily for a number of years. I wake up in the morning and I, I don't take it for granted. It is, it is an amazingly beautiful thing. And I also love that the, the collectors who want to be connected with the artists, not every collector does, but the ones who do have found an avenue to be able to communicate with me and come back or write on my Facebook page or something like that. And that community and camaraderie in the sense of, you know, my art is out there and it's enriching people's lives. It just, you know, just makes me feel that I've accomplished something significant in my life. I feel very, very fortunate. And I, it drives me to keep going, you know, to, to create more work, to keep this communication, to keep my audience, you know, pleased and happy and, and, and excited. What was the pivot point when you say that, that sales are what thrill you the most about the career? I think you're in the envious position that, you know, a lot of working artists uh, would love to be. So what, what is the point at which you would mark, looking back, at which it started to really take off or the thing you did that, that unleashed the, you know, that broke the dam? Well, part of it was, uh, I, I hit a point I, and, um, I just decided to be fearless at that point. I, you know, I think you come out of grad school and there's so much, if you go to grad school or undergrad or even just, you know, classes you've taken or whatever else, that point you decide I want to be an artist, but you're not so sure about it. There's so much self-criticism that goes on. There's so many voices saying, yeah, what do you, you know, you're not any good enough. Or, you know, there's so many artists in the world. Why do you think anybody would buy your stuff? And on and on and on. And it can inhibit you from creating. It's, it's very common. I just, I hit a point and I just went, I'm just going to paint what I want to paint. What feels right for me at this moment and not worry so much about the critical voices or what other people said or this or that and just start pushing the work. And the more I painted and the more I created the, the, the broader acceptance and audience that I found, I just, I, I just think that it, it was just evident that I was passionate about it and throwing the passion into the work and pretty much saying, Hey, this is Chadwick. This is what this is. And so I was able to kind of put my name on it and I got an identifiable style, even though it shifts and moves that, that was, I think that was key. So from a, 
a business and branding standpoint, then it seems like that a, a certain amount of your material, you know, you've got the Jersey Flyer and the Sunset Limited, and you know these paintings sell quickly. And if I were to guess, they look like they sell quicker. Uh, you know, you've got the, the painting of Grand Central. Do you find that associating individual works with a place, uh, a theme that has an existing following, is that part of your, your sales strategy? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is definitely part of it. And, and I mean, it's, um, there are paintings that are more uh, you know, esoteric that I do because I want to do it and it's fun, but there are other things that I know there's an audience for that. And I'm interested in painting it anyway. You know, So Grand Central for me is one of those places not only do I love it, and as a kid, I went in there and it was not what it is now. You know, it's me. I don't know if you were, you know, if you remember Grand Central from when you were little and before the, the remodel, it was kind of a dump. And now it's just this gorgeous architectural element. You know, so many people get married, you know, not married there. They, they get engaged there. They have their first dates there. And I, I like to go hang out there and, and I love to paint it. And people really, really love that place. And, you know, the clock in the, uh, you know, the information booth, you know, those paintings, yeah, they don't last very long. They, they, they tend to go pretty quickly. Greg, you're a fellow in the Clark Hewlings Fund's Business Accelerator Program, which is our graduate program that equips working artists with entrepreneurial skills to grow their business. And you're at the halfway point almost. What, if anything, has been eye-opening for you so far? program itself is, is, is amazingly professional. And so that in itself has been eye-opening. I, I expected high things and it is, it is gone way beyond what I could even have imagined. The level of the folks who are involved in it, the commitment to the 20 of us, um, the ideas that are expressed, the interactions between, between the artists is amazing. You know, and we all have our stories and our skill set. Uh, you know, I love everybody in the program, so I'm only going to be able to mention a couple of people, but Holly Van Hart, I mean, her spreadsheets that you did the, uh, the, um, the session on, I was just blown away. I was looking at that again today. That's some amazing stuff. It's, you know, the, the hands-on ideas and thoughts that enrich us as working artists and our business sensibility that we get daily. It's, it's really, truly an honor. And it's hard work. There's no doubt about it. It's pushing me to get my idea into a concrete form and be able to present it. You know, I'm practicing in elevators all the time now and, uh, you know, adding uh, identifiable markers for, you know, well, yeah, you say you want to do that, but how are you going to get there? And it's, it's not only working with what's going on with Clark Owens, but the other projects that I'm working with as well. So I've um, been contacted by the School of Nursing at UCLA to do a whole series of paintings for their, um, their building. And all my experience in Clark Hollings is, is making it so much easier for me to have the conversations I need to have about that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Holly Van Hart, uh, another working artist in the program, um, and more information about Holly is, and her work is available at clarkhealingsfund.org. But you have a total of 19 other fellows in the program, and you're working on one of several tightly knit teams. So has anything new emerged from the collaboration between you and working artists? Yes, absolutely. We, we have a small group. CHF All-Stars, uh, Wadi White, whose work I absolutely love. And he definitely has a lot of the social leanings and feelings that I do with my work. So our conversations have been 
deep and expressive and helpful and inspiring. And then the small group that we have is, is amazing. I think that our monthly sessions have encouraged and helped us. We've been able to, you know, talk about the difficulties, but also know that there's a small group right there of like-minded individuals that we can get together, Calvin and Kristen, and you to be able to, and Paula, be able to have our dreams and pursue them and talk about them openly with each other. And I think artists, I was just thinking about one of my favorite artists left the studio where I'm at yesterday. I was sad to see him go, but then I'm like, but I do have the Clark Collins Fund and I have my group and I have these artists. Now, is the program tough? Yeah. Yes, it is. It's definitely tough. It reminds me of, uh, I took a drawing class at UCLA. The professor, he basically scared everybody off the first day. This is going to be harder than you think. And, and you're going to work harder than you ever have. And you may hate it, but you're going to love me in the end. And I think there's a lot of that in there. Um, even though nobody's expressed it in that way, it's concrete work. There's no doubt about it. There's no fluff. Well, we tried to scare you off, Greg, but we, we didn't realize that you were going to be this dark, brooding, you know, hard-boiled 1930s mystery painter that wouldn't be scared off. You know, I think your stuff should be on the covers of Stephen King books because it makes I you, do too. it doesn't scare do you, but it makes you wonder. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's yeah. That is, I got a connection there. I got a, I got a yes. Uh, it looks like you know that one. Uh, they sometimes come back, and you've got that painting. I, I forget the type of car, but it's like a red Chevelle, and it just it, when I look at it, it makes me think of that every time. Yes, absolutely. So, so tell me what what's the hardest part of the program specifically for you? I think the the difficult thing is putting thoughts into numbers which is great. I mean, that's what business is. I mean, basically when you come down to it and, um, but not just doing that in a, an ad hoc fashion, but having an organized system that you're continually using that will, you know, propel your business from, from one level to another. There's no doubt about it. It, It's, it's a necessary skill so that you're not spinning your wheels all the time and wasting your time, but it also is, is new for a lot, a lot of us visual artists. It's something that we, we've you know, done a little bits and pieces of it, but you know, the encouragement and also the necessity of learning these skills from the Clark Collins Fund is daunting and deeply, deeply needed. Right, one more question about accelerating, and then we'll sort of move on to the last segment. So um, has your definition of success changed at all during your tenure in the program? Sure, absolutely, because I think that the... Uh, the doors are wide open, you know, the uh, encouragement and the enthusiasm from both the, the program and other members. I mean, I, I'm, you know, my sites, my goals are way beyond just, um, you know, keeping things within a certain uh, um, arena humming along. You know, I definitely have bigger dreams and uh, bigger trains, bigger ideas. We can make them happen. There's no doubt. So I'm going to say to our audience, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. And a portion of that funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. So share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Greg, uh, as we wind down the show, I just want to ask you a bit about social media. And you seem to be really active on social media and your blog. Why do you do that? Why not just stay in the studio and make more work? 
that's that's the question, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes there's the uh, there are a lot of writers who who are on Twitter who are like, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm not writing my novel, but I don't actually really see it that way. There's um, all sorts of levels that happen with social media. One, if you're in your studio by yourself and there's nobody there, people aren't going to come knocking for you. It just it just doesn't happen very much anymore. It's not the same thing. If you're out there on social media after you you know clean your brushes off and then you go home or before you get there in the morning and you're you're communicating. You know, globally, uh, like I had mentioned before, I just got a note from a really good friend in Germany last night um, on Facebook because, you know, they give you little memories. Remember when you met Greg five years ago, you know, and people really respond to that. And you know, she said some really sweet things about me and my art. And those type of connections only happen because of social media. And there are other things that I learn and able to communicate you know, images, it's easy to spread them around. I think Instagram is a fantastic tool, which I'm exploring more and more and more. And, and I'm finding a growing audience and uh, also seeing that a lot of the artists are out there and the art dealers are on Instagram these days. Um, I had actually been pretty involved in Flickr, which now seems you know almost like an antique, you know, like it was an AOL account, but uh, it's still up there and people still find my work. Like I said before, I like to create ideas and subject matter that then when you Google it, you know, my name pops up. Um, it happened, uh, the Central City Opera in 2007 did a whole series of paintings of mine for their, their opera season in the summer of 2007. And they found me by Googling a particular um, poet, Chinese poet. So, you know, social media allows you to sort of seed your your name and your work and your person and who you are. And I think that in our, you can, you know, celebrity driven culture, part of it, but also people, people now, they want to get to know you a little bit, who you are. It's not just the product. It's not just, you know, a painting as a thing. It's a part of a, you know, a lifestyle, so to speak, or who the artist is, what, what, what you care about. And social media allows people to get a glimpse into, into your life. You know, I've done that with musicians my whole life, you know, Another particular, uh, you know, I just went to the U2 concert. I remember, you know, trying to find stuff out about Bono and Edge. What do they do for fun, you know? And now on social media, you get a little taste of it. And I feel a little bit closer. And I know people feel a bit closer to me and my work because of that as well. I think you're talking about the connection between a, a collector, a potential collector, um, or other colleague or partner and, and the artist. Uh, okay, I have just a couple more questions uh, about it, and then we'll we'll wind it down and say goodbye to our audience for now. Uh, so one question is, what's the nature of the communication that you have with your audience? Is it all art, or are you just showing photos of your work, or is there more? Oh, there's a lot more. I, I, I tend to be, when I was a, an undergrad in art, I also was a, a history major as well. I wasn't able to get the degree because of technicalities of UCLA because I was in the art department, but it, you know, historical thinking and ideas um, about social systems and politics and, I, and how that relates to art and social justice is um, prevalent on, in my writing, um, on my blog, and also especially my Twitter feed, which is, is, is way more uh, about um, the other side of my life than, than my art feed as well. But I met a lot of, I met a lot of people through, through Twitter. And also um, found collectors as well who, you know, are finding, you know, connection through, you know, the types of things that we're thinking about and the articles and writing that, um, you know, we're, we're passing on to each other. I have a lot of friends who are writers and um, one of the ways to, to find them, uh, I think in some ways they're even harder to find artists, is 
they tend to all have a Twitter account. So I'm communicating with a lot of different writers online, friends that I've met, and also people I just know via social media. So it really isn't just to um, sort of be more human. You're already more human. You, you do these lectures, you, you do other things, you, you have a voice, and it's a matter of letting people understand where that comes from, I think. In fact, when I was searching for you online, I actually found a book, uh, The Painted Word, uh, A Treasure Chest of Remarkable Words and Their Origins yeah. uh, by Phil Cousineau and artwork by uh, Greg Chadwick. Absolutely. So there are lots of things I can learn about you uh, by by digging around, and it, it does increase the interest, I have to say. So uh, one last question then. Um, you know, we talk about different kinds of people finding writers and other people uh, online through this activity. Uh, no doubt collectors and fans and others that we expect, but do you also have emerging artists that are asking you for advice? Yeah, I do, and I love that. And it happens it happens online and also happens in my studio when, when we have our open studio events. And especially, I mean, I love any artist that comes up and wants to talk about stuff. But when, when it's a teenage artist who's just starting out or just somebody who's in their, the beginning of their undergrad program, you know, when they're able to, you know, kind of get the courage to come up and, you know, there's pretty much, you know, the posture, sort of feet together a little bit, head down, you know, I don't mean to bother you, you know, Mr. Chadwick, but I'm like, ah, you're an artist here. Let's, let's go talk for a little while. And I, I enjoy that very, very much. I had some experiences when I was, I was a younger artist where I went up to one artist in particular, it doesn't matter the name, but I was, it was total brush off and it was just awful. So I went, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm, I really want to connect with people. And especially I know how hard it is as a younger artist to, to just even say, Hey, I, I make art, you know, this is something I love to do. And maybe my mom doesn't like it very much or my dad at this point, but tell them how good it is to be an artist. And that's happened in my studio as well. So it's, it's, it's fun. I enjoy that. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Greg Chadwick, visit gregchadwick.com. That's Greg with two G's, Greg with two G's, chadwick.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Greg. It's been really great having you. Oh, thank you. It's been a real honor. It's been lots of fun.